0: This is the AI Artifacts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Warmith with Sarah Luger, PhD, and we are back again to go beyond the hype, under the hood, and into the fray to see what's happening in AI this week. Ho, ho, ho. This is the last episode of the AI Artifacts Podcast before holiday break, the week of the holiday break for everybody. We hope you're all safe and traveling or at home and healthy. Uh, Sarah, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. And also psyched that I am healthy and just wanting to send a note out to everyone. Stay healthy. There's a lot of gross stuff going around.
0: It is Um, the truth. The absolute truth. I've got a very special continuing holiday theme, Two Truths and Let AI for you today. We didn't get much holiday specific news. I was actually hoping for more specific holiday news in the big headlines, but that's not where fate took us this week. Uh, You brought up this first story you want to talk about, and I think you've got a lot of opinions on face recognition. Tell tell us about what happened with Rite
1: Aid. Okay, so, you know, happy holidays, ho, ho, ho. Let's talk about facial recognition and privacy of your personal data. Okay, Rite Aid has agreed to a five-year ban from using facial recognition this week. They were using this technology And it was unfairly targeting people of color, and they were primarily using it in uh, minority majority neighborhoods and the training data and the actual training of the systems was not up to snuff. So it was poorly trained, unbalanced training data, and they had a ton of false positives. What does this mean to the average person? You walked into a Rite Aid and... And you were shopping, you know, looking at selections, looking at the back of products from they'd grab from the shelf, and suddenly, the security guard was like handcuffing you in front of your friends and family, saying, "Oh, your face is one of a known shoplifter," even though, you know, as as the case was introduced, prosecuted, and now with this resolution, the images that were being used were. Thousands of low quality pictures from store cameras, you know, grainy, Mm -hmm. low, low precision and um, employees' phones. So employees were taking phones. So this was a, this was early adoption of a technology that was not ready for prime time and it was being deployed unfairly in our society. So it was kind of the bingo of bad use cases for AI. But while this is interesting and important I think the bigger bigger story here is actually, hey, we haven't talked about facial recognition technology in several years. In 2020, there was a lot of discussion around, I think this was in part because of the institutionalized violence against people of color in our country that was being recorded on camera, Mm -hmm. and was and, and people of color were not being equally supported. And I think and we so. I think we can be explicit and say this was explicitly <laughs> yeah, disproportionately
0: okay. affecting black people. I mean, people of color broadly and we there have cool. been issues with, you know, Asian people not being recognized well with ai in certain circumstances too but particularly in the context of the george george floyd protests and other things that were going yeah. on at the time Let's i feel like it, yeah i feel like i feel like it's important <laughs> to say that in this context because that's okay. that's what the real con- the context was for a lot of the early use yeah. that became problematic then yeah
1: well i was surprised in the in the right aid that they did say specifically Asian, Hispanic, and Native American yeah, communities, sure. as well as African American. Mm-hmm. But with George Floyd, with our lockdown, the, the COVID lockdown in the United States and globally, we were a reflective and, and technologically, we were in front of our TVs, we're in front of our laptops, processing the cultural uh, events in a very, through a technical perspective, right? Mm-hmm this was our engagement with the world and yet we also knew how they did, how it did not fairly represent the world mm-hmm. so what i think the big story is here is that in 2020 many hyperscalers said that they were going to stop selling facial recognition there was there was a movement to,
0: against that yeah. and you may you may yeah. remember back at google alphabet too there were internal yes. protests over how facial recognition technology could or would be used it it became a thing I, there was the, the first big backlash publicly, I remember, was related to that Clearview AI story that had run in the New York Times, where they described everything that was being collected. And it's, it's noteworthy that Clearview AI has had some legal problems continuing. They settled a class action lawsuit or agreed to settle a, a lawsuit here in Illinois um, that, that was about... Their collection there, Illinois has some of the one of the strictest laws in place about how you can collect and use biometric data. And you know, I want to point out two other things here with Rite Aid as well because they're in a they're in a very tricky position as a company, both in terms of the uh, bankruptcy that they've they've entered mediation because of some issues re- surrounding their uh, the opi- opioids epidemic in the United States and lawsuits brought against them as a, as a result of that. But moreover, it's just a difficult time for retail drugstores in general. I mean, I, I know this, the CVS that used to be right near me closed down and I have to go 15 minutes farther down the road to get to one. It's tough. Amazon's been competitive with these folks and they are looking for answers. There's also the issue of right now, there's been a a lot of blame put on shoplifting, and it's gotten a lot of focus. The, the National Retail Federation recently retracted some stats that it put out about the impact of shoplifting. Target closed a number of stores recently or announced their closures. I don't know how far along they are with those, but shoplifting was blamed, but there's been additional reporting that maybe shoplifting was higher nearby at other stores. So I think it, they called into question how important it was. Sometimes I think in these things, it gets blamed, but it might not be necessarily weighted in real life as importantly as it's weighted but, in the press releases.
1: I, I totally agree. Also, we're using this word shoplifting. We're talking mm-hmm. about organized retail crime. This is where yeah. folks come in as a group, grab a bunch of things off the shelves and oh, leave and yeah. mass. And it's hard for ORC um, as a security,
0: organized retail. Crime. Oh, yeah.
1: so yeah. I think that there are many learnings, but then to go back to my other question, which is, what are Amazon, Google, and IBM, Microsoft doing? Because in 2020, they all announced that they were going to stop mm-hmm. selling to military and police. And I was looking into this and I have not found, um, you know, it, it was a big deal. They said they'd stop selling for a year. They would revisit it. And I will share any information in our notes if if there's more indication of what they are doing. Now.
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not up to speed on that. I'd, I'd like to know where that lies right now. There was another story you brought up too, which was this uh, Madison square garden (laughs) instance, right? Talk about that. It's holiday related. Sure. It It is.
1: It it is holiday related. And this is, and the rocket story was actually from the last holiday season, Mm -hmm. but it, it basically a woman who worked for the law offices that the Madison, Madison square gardens, the owner Dolan family, Mm -hmm. owns also 30 Rock where the Rockettes perform Mm -hmm. and the owners have vendettas, personal vendettas against many people. And one of the ways that they enforce that is that if you work for, if they don't like you and you work for firms that are suing the Madison Square Garden group, they will put your face into a system and you will not be allowed to enter any of their properties. And so there's a great story or mm-hmm. terrifically terrible story about a woman who was taking her daughter to an event, you know, a group of a, mm. a holiday, a school holiday event. It might've been the Girl Scouts. And, very normal New York activity. If you've you got
0: a, a child's group to go <laughs> yes. into the city and go, if you're in the city I take the kids and go see yeah. a Rockets concert. I, yeah. Very common. Yeah. But she thinks that she got yeah, so, picked up by, I don't know if this was proven because it seemed like there was doubt when it first got brought up because there's so many touch points in the ticketing system. Like she might've, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, at the ticket desk, her, they might've n- seen her name flagged when they saw a ticket was sold to somebody who knows, but it does seem yeah. like they were pretty fast in finding her and identifying her when she showed up. Yeah. I'd miss this. Exactly. Story when so it we have, ran. Yeah.
1: We'll, we'll uh, link to it, but I think it's very interesting mm-hmm. because here we have kind of two two polars, Mm -hmm. two polar uh, opposites, right? We have people who are just trying to go in and buy, I don't know, Gatorade and Mucinex. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you're at a CVS doing very specific things, and then people going to see live entertainment. Mm -hmm. And these are, in one case, someone has already bought the ticket, and then they aren't allowed in. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And then in the other, someone is just trying to make a purchase. Yeah. It's it's a it's place in your everyday slagged. life
0: where this this technology <laughs> intersects with you whether you like it or yeah. not out in the public yeah. world of stores and venues. Yeah. Let's uh, I want It is into...
1: interesting yeah. oh, I was just going to say Illinois is, it it is interesting that Illinois is uh, is pushing and maintaining mm-hmm. uh, good regulation. I think that it's important that California is not the only state really uh, fighting for this stuff because there needs to be a little bit of negotiation back and forth figure out what is the best way to protect our citizens. Yeah.
0: It's true. I, and speaking of some of these big tech companies you brought up, I want to get into the Apple discussion that was brought up today this week in the news. There were a couple of media dis, like discussions that were reported on. The one not quite relevant to us was this I, I don't know if you saw about the Paramount discussions reportedly to potentially mm-hmm. maybe David Zas- David Zaslav was going to merge them into Warner Brothers and and do something mm-hmm. with that. Shot down is merely talking and not really an advanced discussion. But similar to that, in the AI realm, Apple mm-hmm. has reportedly been talking to some news publishers. I think in the report, it named NBC News, Condé Nast, and IAC media companies where it could be paying multi-year deals of 50 million each, potentially 50 million US dollars each for the use of news content from these companies to train Apple's AI, which is something you don't hear in the news too much about these days. But this, interse- this intersects with the story we talked about last week, which was the the deal Axel Springer had with OpenAI. And there are some similar use cases for the AI LLM owner in this case. Well, I don't know if Apple has an LLM.
1: Oh Apple definitely has LLMs and yeah. what is really interesting is how Apple is going to be rolling out on device LLMs so that mm-hmm. you know their brand is privacy first. So there's going to be a lot of innovation around small LLMs big enough mm-hmm. to provide what you need but small enough to run on device and avoid the cloud at least for your private data. So I'm really looking forward to what Apple produces in this, you know this area I, I don't think but, i've seen do you know what apple's llm is named no and i have not heard, i have a, not heard a title a, you yeah. know
0: everybody else everybody else has a brand name attached to it but you know siri is definitely not an llm it is a voice assistant that you know uh, does yeah. not have the same capabilities well
1: it's well siri the technology that's underpinning siri is in some ways very similar mm-hmm and in some ways, different. but yeah. they're going to be amping up all of these smart assistants with LLM uh, technology. It's I think that the the main difference between how good some of them feel right now is how much of the inference and knowledge basis that they've built underpinning these these systems. But under doing statistical natural language processing, like Siri has, are based on some of the fundamental yeah. shared technologies, all of these smart assistants are going to get better, but to your yeah. point, what about their their consumer based LLM? Mm-hmm. we We have not heard anything, and I think that the their secrecy as well as their hardware software kind of partnership, mm-hmm. they differentiate themselves from from Google in that respect, I think this is going to be a really interesting spot to watch. I
0: I wonder as it builds out, if they keep Siri as the name, or if Siri eventually gets replaced with something because, you know, Siri as a brand does not have that. I don't know, utility in my brain. Mm -hmm. that something like a competitor has right now. And I wonder if, I wonder if what, if what we see in 10 years is Siri powered by Apple's AI with the same brand and face Mm -hmm. in front of it and potentially default voice. Or if that ends up transitioning to something else. Beyond that, I don't have a whole lot to say because this was, you know, rumored talks, early Mm -hmm. talks about this stuff. I don't, there's, it's not like there's been a deal made, but. But it does tie in to what you, to what we
1: discussed last week. Exactly. And and I have the
0: same underlying ultimate point to make, which is, you know, these companies are going to make a decision and the choice they're going to make here could be, are we going to make short term big amounts of money in exchange for, training something that puts us out of business a few years later. And that's, I think the strategy consideration you have Mm. to make if you're, if you're in this position as a media company. I agree. Yeah. Let's get to one more. I I want to get into the funding before we go to True Truths and, Truths and Lay AI this week. So back to the companies that we've been talking about for Almost every episode, I think, on here, OpenAI is reportedly trying to raise a new one, a new round of funding at a 100 billion dollar valuation. Uh, this is reported by Bloomberg. Uh, Anthropic is trying to raise reportedly 750 million dollars, which is, I think, equal to most of what, if not all of what they've raised already, at an 18.4 billion dollar valuation. It's huge amounts of money. And this this follows- Huge report, amounts. Yeah. It follows some reporting earlier in December based on PitchBook data that funding for AI startups, I'm reading from TechCrunch here, has surpassed 68.7 billion total in 2023, according, according to PitchBook. And uh, TechCrunch took an interesting look at this to say that you know, yes, there's been this this many billions, which is insane, especially given the last couple of years of venture funding falling off a cliff. But really, there's been a select group of companies responsible for the vast majority of it. There's you know, yeah, yeah, that's where it's going.
1: Uh, I, I I agree. I I feel like that number sixty eight point seven billion is very impressive. Mm-hmm. but it really skews just to a, a handful of companies mm-hmm. and with open ai trying to raise a 100 uh, at a 100 billion valuation 2 months ago during the a month and a half ago i don't know what should we call it the open ai drama week just they, anchor it in your it,
0: anchor in your brain is having <laughs> Essentially been the week before Thanksgiving. I'll, that'll always the week, be the be week, sure, week before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in my in my memory okay. for 2023. Yeah. Uh,
1: the week before they had, two weeks before they had their one-year CHAP GPT birthday, they had their internal meltdown. And the numbers being thrown around said based on funding and their valuation, they were looking at $80 billion. Somewhere 70, 80 definitely was, was you know, in the in the discussion so mm-hmm. this is a 20 billion increase in their valuation but anthropic that's that's a big increase for them as well i mean that's a fifth for mm-hmm. for open ai but mm-hmm. for anthropic that's these are huge numbers and then who who gets the rest of the cash mm-hmm. it does seem to be based on you know analysis of of the How did you describe it? The .ai domain name sales.
0: Yeah, I think what I was saying to you before the episode for for people, which is everybody listening who were not there. uh, Yeah, I was (laughs) just saying you you can't just change your startup's name to startup name .ai and change your brand and expect to start getting this kind of funding coming your way. It's really going to you know a small cluster of folks at the top who are who are getting this because this is these are the winners that the venture capital folks putting the money into the pot are picking because they think these could be winner take all situations, which I'm skeptical of in the AI world. And so I have have two things, two thoughts on this. One is, you know, a decade later, two decades later, are we going to see that one of these really was the breakaway winner take all or, you know, Google meta size amount of market share company in this space Or are we going to see a world where because these AI models are training off of each other and deals for data have been brokered and scattered across everywhere that you've just got a a more, I don't know if you want to say commodified arena for this technology use? Is there really going to be one dominant player or which would justify this? Because based on this valuation for OpenAI, I I was reading that according to... uh, CB Insights data, this would make OpenAI at this valuation the number two most valuable privately held company behind SpaceX at this point. Wow. Which is an incredible milestone for a company that's really been so young in the public eye. You know, they've been around for a few years, but really actually doing things in the public space for a, a relatively short amount of time. So I wonder about that. And I think. That's really an open question, and that's a big gamble. The the other thing I want to say is I think that there that might be behind these valuations, is you know it's like we're saying it's been a rough couple of years for raising money as a startup, early stage, and to see this opportunity and see this uh, see the potential for raising this much money right now. I think they're trying to start strike while the while the iron's hot, just like you know companies who raise their like, like late stage series right before the public markets went down uh, a couple years ago. Yeah, I I wonder if there's a little bit of that urgency behind this because I and I think that speaks might speak to your question of why raise now and why raise this much right now.
1: Exactly. And and so to your first question, that's a fantastic what if, right? What what will happen? Mm-hmm. I think that even in in 20 10, 20 years. I think what's interesting about Anthropic and OpenAI specifically, is that they're foundational model companies, they are building infrastructure for other AI for other companies, mm-hmm. some of which are AI centric, in terms of using AI to solve a specific domain or vertical mm-hmm. challenge, you know, so an AI company says, I do this, and I do it with AI, and they use Anthropic under the hood. Great a lot of normal, you know, consumer packaged good, petrochemical. These sorts of companies are going to be using Anthropic and OpenAI and are using. But these two companies have raised a, f- a fantastic amount of money and they've you could argue that all press is good press. So OpenAI was crazy in the news. Let's leverage that as an opportunity to to raise some money. I think that's At a really other- excellent point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, everyone, and especially about don't they, because they I, I, I couldn't
0: get this out of my head. You know, one of the stories that came out was that the board was very unhappy that Sam Altman had been having discussions with, I forget, was it a Saudi company that or Saudi investors? There, there was a deal. Yeah. He was he was talking about a chip deal that would potentially have he would have had a f- larger financial stake in to make money off of. Than he would at OpenAI, and you know, was I want- Johnny
1: Ives involved in that as well? Like it was, it was like a super group. It was money, design, and Sam Altman. Yeah, I, I'm getting and off. So it sounded like he was doing. it up, but <laughs> I, I,
0: I bring it up to yeah. say with part of that story brought to light the fact that he was pursuing some big money opportunities on the side related to OpenAI, and it seemed like there was a signal, either intentionally or coincidentally, coming out with that breaking news that, oh, you put Sam Altman in, there is a really hungry executive in charge looking for some massive dollar opportunities. And I don't know if that was a flag or a, I'm sure it set off the spidey senses for a lot of people willing to put this kind of money behind open AI. So yeah, I think you're right.
1: I, I agree. I've also seen that he's his investment firm that he runs with his brothers is getting a lot of recent traction. And only imagine. But if we look at this from a macro perspective, we can say, well, the what's going on in the market? AI is the rage. There's a lot of unknowns with these smaller companies. Anthropic and open AI are in the news. They seem like more sure bets. And with interest rates possibly falling of late, as well as inflation, mm-hmm. it seems like maybe a time to make hay.
0: It could be. It it's could be. To be made. It could be. Yeah. Whether it's and that's the thing. Whether it's a rising spike that keeps on going, or whether we're at the near the crest of this, it does look like a time when they know they can get a lot. All right. Yeah,
1: and they can use that money to to keep the little guys out. But you know. Other side of the
0: story. All right, let's yeah. jump in to Two Truths and Lay AI for this week. Uh, for anybody who has not heard this podcast before, this is our weekly series where I put in front of Sarah two real news stories and one story that's been generated by artificial intelligence. And then she gets to choose which one was made up by artificial intelligence. And right now she's she's ahead of me, I believe, by a, span, a spread of two three are we at two or three i have to go check i'll put the score in the in the in there it's okay it's
1: it it feels close it feels close
0: yeah so without further ado sarah i'm going to bring up two examples that i have right now and let's see what you think and I'll, i'll tell you what the real news sources are at the end after we've gone through these so first story These are all seasonally appropriate this week. AI-powered Christmas spectacle amazes and astounds in suburban Indianapolis. In a quiet suburb just outside of Indianapolis, one resident has taken the art of Christmas light displays to a whole new level by incorporating artificial intelligence to create a mesmerizing and shocking holiday spectacle. Mr. John Anderson, a tech enthusiast and resident of the neighborhood, has become the talk of the town with his home's Christmas light display that is not only visually stunning, it is also intelligently responsive. Anderson has harnessed the power of AI to synchronize the lights with music, weather patterns, and even real-time social media interactions. The lights meticulously arranged across the front yard and the house facade pulsate in harmony with the melodies, creating an immersive experience that captures the spirit of the season. Very cool. But the real shock factor comes from Anderson's Uh integration of social media interactions in the display. Visitors are encouraged to use a specific hashtag when posting about the spectacle on platforms like Twitter and Instagram. So I should Uh-oh. say Twitter X, formerly known as Twitter. The AI system scans these posts in real time and incorporates the content into the light show. As a result, heartfelt messages of joy, holiday greetings, and even funny anecdotes from the community become a part of the dazzling display. All right, that's number one. Number two, Airbnb using AI to help clamp down on New Year's Eve parties globally. As communities around the world get ready to ring in 2024, Airbnb is bringing in restrictions on certain bookings over New Year's Eve that aim to reduce the risk of unauthorized and disruptive parties in local neighborhoods and will be deploying AI-powered technology to help enforce them. The proprietary anti-party AI and machine learning technology is being activated in several countries and regions globally. This system aims to try to identify one, two, and three-night booking attempts for entire home listings over the holiday weekend that could potentially be potentially higher risk for a disruptive and unauthorized party incident and block those bookings from being made. That's number two. And number three, Saving Rudolph, AI used to deter deer from railway tracks this Christmas. Deer are being deterred from railway lines using a system harnessing artificial intelligence. It will be rolled out to other sections of the East Coast Main Line, which stretches between London's King Cross, Kings Cross, sorry, and Edinburgh, sorry, Edinburgh or Edinburgh. I always say that the wrong way. When I, I'm sure, I, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, like yeah, yeah, you got it. With high rates of deer incursions, the automated deer deterrent system, known as ADS. A D (laughs) D S developed in partnership with network rail uses sound and vision sensors to identify when a deer approaches the tracks. The ads system has deterred an average of 50 deer per week since the start of testing in May. The, according to L N E R, that is an organization name that stands for the,
1: yeah, that's the, that's the, the rail guy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Our first deployment of this innovation system is to deter, excuse me, our first deployment of this innovation system to deter DEER has quickly proven that the solution can save time, stress, and most importantly, DEER. That's according to LNER Chief Digital and Innovation Officer, Danny Gonzalez. At such a time of the year for travel, we are proud to have developed a novel approach that has not only supported LNER, but also the many other train operators who along with their customers have also benefited from a reduction in deer strikes along the East Coast mainline. All right,
1: interesting. And that closes. That's very interesting. Option number
0: three. Yeah.
1: Okay, so LNER is London Northeastern Railway, and it used to be, I think, Virgin Group. Mm-hmm. What have you? Anyways, they're good. You know, good product. I would say. I've used it. I want Saving Rudolph to be to be true. I want it to be true, and i haven't heard about the 50 deer per week you know like the the deaths that's that's a lot of deer but airbnb using ai yes that sounds smart and also not that difficult to figure out i think that the first one I think it's I think it's iffy to have social media, especially without a filter, because then someone's gonna walk up to your house and or like think of, you know, what's his name? Griswold.
0: Clark uh, Griswold. From, yeah. Clark. Jeremy yeah, Chase's my bad. character from National Lampoons Christmas <laughs> Vacation. <of course.
1: laughs> he had a you know, he was had a competitive and this is I'm sure a part of a lot of at least North American tradition mm-hmm. of competing with your neighbors for best light display. So I could imagine a neighbor would use this to say explicit or terrible things and so that would ruin the spirit of Christmas with their mean meanness also some of the wording it seemed very it seemed very chat GPT and that that was something about it seemed a little chat GPT like and I want Rudolph to be to be so I'm I'm going with kind of a desire to want to save some deer and I think Airbnb should be doing that if they're not doing that. that's a That seems like an obvious AI win. So, yeah, I'm going to go with number one.
0: You win. I give it to you once again. <laughs> All right, my hat's off. It was, you it got was it.
1: Something, it. It was calling him the talk of the town <laughs> and visually stunning. There's something about yeah, the wording where I was right. like, is this a parade magazine write-up? <laughs> it doesn't i'm actually finding
0: (laughs) excuse me that the most (laughs) challenging i I feel like the most challenging pieces i've brought up in here that that give you pause are the ones that are from a parade style or like regional newspaper or um, actually the airbnb one i should say is actually from the airbnb press release about this that was their own newsroom there the uh, interesting the Saving Rudolph piece comes from the Andover Advertiser. Fine, mm-hmm. fine name for a paper. And yes, mm-hmm. that is real. So good. I hope they're saving. Good, some, saving some lives,
1: yep. one deer at a time. All right. oh, ah, a good. wonderful,
0: wonderful win for you to go out on before before we come back after the Christmas break here. All right, I let's go in. We have a we have a great interview ready for you that I'm going to cut over to
1: now. I am so excited to introduce today's guest. Thank you, Fabian Bayer, for joining us from Pulse AI. He started his first company right after the dot-com boom in 2003. He built data centers and provided hosting solutions after that. Game server hosting provider situation morphed into what we now would describe as a cloud hosting provider, so prescient. He also worked at Mesosphere on distributed systems, he built data science platforms. I can continue. And you know what? I will. Open source kudo.dev as a CNCF sandbox project, worked at Freenome and biotech looking at curing cancer. So he's, he's been on the right side of a few things, although that, I might note that's not quite there yet. But he quit to start Pulse AI less than a year ago, about eight months ago. And Pulse AI is in the large language model space for enterprise. And so it is with great pleasure that I introduce Fabian Bayer. Please join us. Thank you.
2: Thanks for coming on, Fabian. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be on the cast. Yeah. So t-
0: tell me what it was like started. What made you want to start an AI startup eight, only eight months ago?
2: Only eight months ago, yeah, we we incorporated March 20th. It took us a little bit of time to like incorporate, and this is a whole story in itself. I'm talking on how to how to like get, get the fundraising and everything. But the conversation really started last year, around September October, induced by when Stability AI came out with these great models on like generating pictures, and we were thinking that there's there's really some some something going on here, and, and how can we how can we start making a business out of this, and what would be the idea? So we were brainstorming Storming. And yeah, it took it took some some time. Famously, ChatGPT came, with, which helped us and, and helped particular me in making that decision. But then, starting starting in March, we really thought, okay, like I asked myself, how how would the future look like when with that trajectory in, in five years or in two three years from now, and and what future do I want to live? And, and really what what stood out to me was, I, I think there will be millions of these large language models and, and, and there needs to be, it's sort of like the next wave like we had with cloud computing. And there needs to be, or there will be many platforms that are like sort of forming and I want to be part of this. And I think we should build a, a platform that, that helps you like during your journey with all of that. And so, yeah, that's that's how the idea of Posei came into life.
1: Well, this fits really well with your journey because you have been building infrastructure, ML platforms for research teams, business intelligence platforms. So this recent experience at a biotech firm, you you did a pivot and said, hey, LLMs are the future. You saw an opening in the marketplace. Tell us more about, you know, viewing this kind of, viewing this challenge from a more specifically ML platform perspective. You're the first person, Mm -hmm. as Brian may have mentioned, that is trying to solve enterprise style problems from our guests.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think particularly in the biotech space, Interestingly, how and there are two two components to it. But like one one component that is very interesting, the adaptation on how these things were working. So at FreeNOME in in cancer research, we were building with uh, scikit-learn many models. And, and ultimately come down though to a, a binary decision on like, do you have cancer or don't you have cancer? And what stood out for me with large language models in the thinking of as a, a large language model as a um, compiler, if you will, or part of a operating system that you now you can just articulate your classifier in, in, in very good, like hopefully with prompt engineering, through very good verbal language and, and get the same sort of like uh, utility out of it as if you would have built it like before then. And, and so that enables, I think, an entire new set of innovation and um, also how what applications can be built, particularly also in the enterprise uh, space. You can think about also like social media or so like generating blog posts tweets, access, or posts there. And so there's like, now it's really, you don't need to be the coder to to build something as complicated like a classifier. We, We do this actually with the first thing that I started here at Pulse AI was, Hey GPT-4, come up with the top 20 categories in the world, and then generate me in that sort of synthetic data generation, generate me like example prompts to each of them. And I use them to uh, to train expert model in a way. But you can think about just like giving an instruction to a large language model and say like, hey, whatever I give you here, is it part of one of these 20 categories and just return me that category for categorization things? Or is that a positive or negative sentiment and, and, and so forth?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, let me let me ask this, because I, I think getting into it and defining the product is important first for our listeners to hear that, but I, I'd love to know more about, you know, this has been a big year for rushes and AI is everywhere. You know, I, I always tell Sarah, I, I think I've said this 100 times, I went to TechCrunch Disrupt a few months ago and hmm. was just blown away by AI is just on everything, every company, even if they weren't an AI company six months earlier, seems to have become an AI company. How mm-hmm. how did you know what kind of company you wanted to start in this space? And how did you figure out how to define that? And how did you choose serving enterprise audiences as, as a target?
2: Yeah, so, so, so my background working at Mesosphere, which later got renamed to D2IQ, was working on first a supercomputer distributed system with Apache Mesos. And then the, uh, during the pivot on Kubernetes, as that operating system for the cloud with the abstraction layer of building applications on top of that. I thought, is, is, there are many parallels when you think about the technology of large language models and maybe model as a service in a way as well, where folks start building similar how we saw in the Kubernetes sort of ecosystem applications that, that are tailored towards enterprise needs. And what are these applications that they build? What sort of like infrastructure and, and things to run on the back end would they need? And, and that's really when the idea of Pulse AI came into fruition and, and, and what we wanted to focus on first. But we we didn't know that direction we knew the direction that goes this way and because we saw this happening in the past and the same thing will happen again but so what can we build six months from now one year from now that once that adaption like uh, kicks in we we are ready we dare so it's like almost shooting a little bit on a moving target a little bit ahead of it to figure out this is really needed and and Interestingly, now we saw that it, what happened in this year that there there is this trend actually in when it comes to uh, model validation, model routing. You mentioned TechCrunch during that time. Also, with StreamForce Einstein Studio came out, and also the idea of API gateways. We saw acquisition of Mosaic ML through pricks and that suddenly using these gateways are like really a, a thing in in the enterprises because enterprises have to look at their like cost reductions cost monitoring, observability, that LLM ops uh, synonym there and what it what it really means for them and, and how they can achieve that. There are companies like Weights and Biases, for instance, that provide dashboards. There are companies like Grafana that provide dashboards as well. We, by the way, integrate tightly with Grafana Cloud for, for observability here. And so, yeah, this is this is all like pain points that I think enterprises will start when they try to adapt these, that technology. Yeah. And, and I
0: know... One of the things I found most interesting is you know, and other companies have chosen this as well, is to have a you know multi LLM approach where you're bringing in and leveraging Mm -hmm. different large language models, which is brings me to a question I really was excited to ask you about because I love perspectives on this. You know, what do you see differentiating these LLMs right now from each other, and what do you see driving user interest in choosing one versus another? And what does that look like? You know, I I have experience with a limited number, but what is that marketplace like? And do you think they're well-distinguished right now? And and in what ways? So I think
2: notable models, like I I look back this year and I thought it it starts on March 14th when GPT-4 came out. So this was just also for reasoning, a very big, I think, gain there. And then, but though May 8th already, GPT-4 32K came out with a very strong focus on the context and just like increasing the context window and just adding more information because it cannot just hold as much in its short memory. I'm Dory, I'm suffering on short memory loss sort of thinking. And then from there, you also saw that there's some like innovation when it happened with the parameters, like uh, MPT 30 billion that came out on June 22nd. It shortly followed also with more open source models with Llama 2 70 billion July 18th, which happens to be also my birthday. So I'm, I'm a big fan of open source. And I think also what happens with Llama 2 is that now this is for enterprises even more exciting because they have these open source models that they can like tie together with their proprietary data, which and GPT-4, although they just announced recently, the OpenAI, the uh, sort of like partnership with Axel Springer, for instance, to get even more like access to data sets. But it, it, you having your proprietary data is, is really data is the new oil in a way, and so enterprises really need to should know that this is really your unique selling proposition, your defensibility, the data that you're sitting on, and now you have open source models and can like marry that with these with these models to gain actually value out of these data So I'm very excited about also seeing that trend towards open source to sort of the increased context size with Claude and Claude two that, that came out I think Claude two November uh, two point one November 2020. Twenty-first, we saw GPT four preview coming out, and we saw also Falcon one hundred eighty billion. Those were my highlights, and then most most recently, I think with uh, Mistral, Mistral eight by seven billion on December 11th a couple of days ago that shows sort of this sparse mixture of expert architecture that comes into place which what we're doing at Pulse AI we sort of we, we didn't think about it at that time that much but this is sort of what we're building but on a massive scale with all of the large language models out there not just like marrying, marrying it into one single model but actually coming back to what GPT-4 really is and there's a, enough papers that shows that there are multiple uh, domain expert models under the hood we just applied that concept of the entire, on the entire entire space of, of large language models to identify which is your uh, expert model so you don't have to do it. So I think that's very exciting and, and as a development to see how, how fast this increased also this year.
1: Uh, that was a fantastic summary of some of the releases over the past year. A few things I'd like to say. That was one
0: year. How crazy is that? <laughs>
1: yeah, that was right? one year. On. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um yeah. and while while you were kind of reeling off those dates, I, I remembered exactly where I was on many of them myself and also shout out to a fellow Cancerian. Woo-hoo. The the thing that really struck me in that kind of early summer when when things started cascading in terms of it wasn't just open AI. It was clearly everyone had been working on this we know the LLM transformer technology was afoot. We knew folks had releases on deck, but the hits kept on hitting. And that was about the time that the Google engineer paper came out about not having a moat and the role of open source options with Llama 2, as well as the maybe, maybe the real challenges, which you've touched on. So right now we have a marketplace we have a bunch of different options as you've said some you can and you'll tell us I'm sure more about how they're tuned to certain certain business verticals and use cases but the architecture and the reinforcement learning have kind of separated themselves from the data what you were calling oil i totally agree so when you have this routing a model request product. Mm -hmm. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about how the architecture and the, the reinforcement learning or, or perhaps fine tuning by a customer could play a role? Yes.
2: So, so, so what we're doing at Pulse AI is in, in our platform, basically integrating all large language models out there and, and we beat any single large language model with a better quality at lower costs. And so the, algorithm that, that we're building or the architecture, the tool that this has been based on is, is called Smart Semantic Model Allocation Routing Tool is currently the name that, we, that we're giving giving it. And so the idea, be, the oh, idea you're behind selling, this...
1: You're selling an in-house expert to many of these enterprises. You're yes. allowing a company yes. to have an in-house expert who can look at all of these options and say, actually, we know exactly the best one for you.
2: Yeah, and the the architecture there is what we're doing is we're going in and taking open source data sets from the various benchmarks that you saw that are currently used to evaluate if, if X crocs came came out and so forth, there's all these sort of in LLMU benchmarks and so forth that, that like show how good it's performing compared to GPT-4, compared to other models. And we're using a lot of these prompts and data sets, answer-based questions, but also open-ended questions. And we're taking these and replaying to all of the models that we have integrated with on our platform and use rater models like GPT-4 and others that are also instruction tuned because then they can rate better to like rate for us the response, to come up with sort of like a FICO credit score like score, but a better understanding in what little domain this model is performing very well. And, and so this, this is sort of the, the idea of that, of that CREF or that data semantic space that we're organizing and each of these prompts, and that's the beauty of this, we like sort of help to make this better over time for these applications as in that like vector space or semantic space, as the number of prompts grow and the numbers of like vetted prompts that we use for these sort of like replaying and scoring, we get a better understanding on like little fine nuances and know that like, yeah, this is in the in the math problem, a good model to answer, but particularly maybe when it comes to answering like summary uh, organizations or something like this. So we can go in uh, deeper down there and making this more fine current. And that is particularly interesting. Just had it today with a user for translating into the danish language because most of these are used to not like use like for instance european languages i mean mistral does a create, tries to establish itself there as a player too but let's say you you want a model that is like very good in answering like the danish language or the german language and so forth and like what is the model that is really good at this and like what prompts are you need to send them in that language and so th- through that architecture we don't have to make an edge case so it's sort of like automatically like organizes it in that way. And with that, we can like fine tune it almost out of the box already for your application, which makes it very powerful. And also for enterprises very interesting because running these things through an embedding model is also way cheaper than actually sending it to these. And so, yeah, I think there's like coming also going into the next year, a lot of, a lot of innovation that will happen.
1: You, you bring up a great point with translating into Danish because with OpenAI, with Google, even though Google has a history in machine translation, and of course, Meta has a ton of multilingual aligned data, the recent Helm paper out of Stanford talks about weaknesses in what I would describe maybe as medium resource languages, not the English, not the, the French, not the Chinese, but actually other languages that millions of people speak besides low resource, which are often more uh, spoken languages. So medium resource languages. There are many companies that are operating in these uh, domains, speaking these languages with a lot of interesting uh, results, but that kind of FICO score credit score, you can now add language to that for your customers, correct?
2: Yes, and and sort of that score is just a simplification of it. The idea why I called it FICO score is because we have multiple components that get into the decision of like how good this model uh, really is. And what we're doing under the hood is just like a, a nearest neighbor search. Just what's the distance between this vector with the other vector, and the closer the the more likely. And okay, we 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 played already um, with that like reference vector our our model request, and so we don't have to do this by the way on the fly the inference is just 50 milliseconds as an overhead so all of this compute can happen at another time so we can also for enterprises that have like a heavy load make integrate integrate with almost no overhead and it's very cheap also and scales very well which is super important when you have more data and so these 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 languages are also, like there's a lot of bias that is introduced by just like we did like really the the idea that we have with, with Pulse AI and that evaluation framework that we're building under the score under the hood that that enables us is really turning this black box into a class box. So we know based on these benchmarks, but also based on our own proprietary data, like how good is is that model really? And if you as an enterprise sit on your own data, you can come up and fine-tune your own model and use that same scoring to uh, take advantage of that in your little universe of large language models that just works for you because that is data that OpenAI hasn't seen and other companies. And that's sort of also what we see as a trend that you see that a lot of companies that sit on their own data, they don't really... They start like uh, protecting that data to not make it available. And that's what happened early in the internet as well, that you had this little AI robot crawler, don't crawl my uh, sort of thing. But that's another way how you can think about us is also uh, we're building this page rank algorithm that Google did when the internet came out and you were like looking and searching for home pages. Now it's just like that we're matchmaking you with the right large language model so you can get actually a good quality
0: response. That scoring premise alone is a really interesting piece of research mm-hmm. in my eyes. I, I, I mean, I'm curious. Yeah. What, what do you feel like you've learned seeing the results of that? And do you see LLMs in a, any LLMs in a different way after seeing how they emerge through that prism?
2: Yeah, uh, it, it really depends. Depends on your on your use case. Uh, yeah, oh, it depends. Yeah, but the, the the inter, the interesting thing there is, for instance, specifically models that are instruction trained perform way better when it comes to, for instance, RAG, so retrieval augmentation
0: generation sort of applications. Tell me what that means, because I know there are, there are a lot of people that that term is going to go past.
1: Yeah, and Kurt mentioned this last. Uh, we had a, a speaker join us about evaluation ai evaluation so this narrative resonates both with brian and i as well as our audience Lee mentioned rag as well so please please reiterate what that means yeah
2: so so one way of of how what it means for me is basically all know that famous september 21st cutoff date with chat gpt and it just doesn't know anything up to this knowledge yeah. And so through REC, you have the option to take a foundational model and introduce new knowledge to that model. And that's why, by the way, this context window size is so interesting because you can introduce even more knowledge to it. So the reasoning can become better and better and better. And that's why we see mostly driven by that, the idea of like having these big context window sizes, in my opinion, so that you can like take, you don't have to have that costly training process, but you can go one step further, which is just like introducing in the prompt just new knowledge and taking that as sort of your reference and do that because these also another interesting part is that these large language models are stateless and really like there's no leakage between for enterprises that's very interesting no leakage between two different large language models they are all built uh, and trained on the same data if that data was not part of it like for enterprise for instance customers what was the latest data email from a specific customer that wasn't used to train that model that is just generally very good uh, in reasoning but you can few, few shots zero shot, and so forth prompt engineering, just introduce that knowledge. And so, to me, really, the that's a long wind that's sort of like setting the stage for, for what Rag is. Like, if you look at REC as a typical application and large language model application that is built with REC, you always have the prompt that comes in that it gets vectorized in a way, so you so you know like so what's what's going on, what 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 needs to be answered here, and then what you did pre pre uh, precursing this, similar what we do with our smart technology in a way, the data that you wanted to be relevant, you just embedded that in. And start that in a vector database. And that's another big trend that happened this year is like vector databases left and right. And so they're the very famous one, Pinecone, ChromaDB, PG Vector, VV8, another one from the Netherlands. And so what happens there is that that data is basically vectorized. And then same way here through semantic search, you find the data that is most relevant to that prompt that you asked. And then you can look this up and just like introduce that in the prompt that you then send finally to your model. And then that is making the answer better. That is like introducing new knowledge to that model. You don't introduce new knowledge to the model when you do that fine tuning. That's more like teaching it that skill about it ends are always in the style of Steve Chops or so, or as ends are always in the style of giving me a chase response to that or categorizing on that, but you don't introduce new knowledge to it. You can't, it can't like do something new that it hasn't seen yet.
1: So I can, I can try to reiterate this maybe in a, in a more general use case. So with LLMs, the data is vectorized. We can, we can go deep about the technical approach, but it basically means when you're generating responses, the responses are based on mathematical closeness, you know, actually geometric, but closeness of the words statistically to each other. So when the data was scraped for GPT-4, September 21st, 2022, I believe, what that meant, and so number one, that's old data, as Fabian was saying, what that meant is the knowledge of the system was based primarily, the data knowledge was based primarily on that scrape and for real enterprise solutions where you go in and maybe ask a a question of your intranet, this information that was not included in that scrape or even needs to be more uh, novel. It actually needs to be lively and relevant because we all know that timeliness is such a key part of that. What you can do is vectorize your own data And with that larger context uh, model, the window with larger context window models, you can now get, you can include more information in that retrieval and you can get a more timely customized response. And this this is an absolute game changer for enterprise because while ChatGPT, for example, is kind of a fun parlor game, this allows you to use the underlying technology. With your personalized data, without these larger companies having access to your data.
2: Yep, and it comes also, comes also with some security issues, right? Like, is the customer data then suddenly exposed? Do I expose my social security number and so forth? And so we see like these sort of policies, enforcements on top of that as well. But the the the, the main. Like like benefit that I see in REC is really that you can introduce your own proprietary data without having to train that model from scratch. And then you can, of course, put like some filters on it because it's very raw in a way. But that enables like many use cases in the enterprise, but also small businesses that are like really like, I think, we'll, where
0: we will see way more applications uh, starting into the new year. Yeah. Let me, I have really got, I think, two more questions for you here. Fabian, a big one, you know, I I see you serve a large range of use cases or sectors, shall we say, R&D, marketing, sales, legal, et cetera. I'm curious to know how you've, where you started in all that, who do you start to serve first and what what are the common threads through all those sectors that, that you found in terms of what Pulse AI is able to do?
2: Yeah, I think, so we talked to hundreds of companies and asked them sort of what their pain points were. And and what stood really out was the evaluation of the quality, sort of that trap that you're locked in with one model provider. We saw that yeah. happening, uh, the ven- the vendor lock-in happening in, in the last move uh, to, to cloud providers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we saw that all cloud providers sort of specialized in their specific niche and even smaller ones for specific various aspects. So we see that happening again. And that was a big pain point, particularly for enterprises. Yeah. There's this formal currently that every day there's another new model coming out that is better. What doesn't change much is that the data is with you, but there's this new model and, and you just want to go into that sort of frenzy and you want to know, is that new model maybe working for me better? And the switching cost of this is just huge. And then at the same time, also, like we see some like price pricing strategies that happening. We saw that, I think like to get AI, do, did some price cuts, 70% of what Mistral is doing and so forth so there's like happening already between the foundational models like who is the cheapest one with the highest quality and so forth and we're right in the middle of this sort of as a broker if you will that spots for you for that specific like request the best quality to the cheapest price and that is enabling and helping a lot of the enterprises that have for 2024 like cost reductions cost monitoring on their like roadmap an entire like new use case of getting like cheaper to the same outcome and reducing costs when it comes to, for instance, like their implementation AI strategy, large language model adaption
0: and so forth. Yeah. It's it's so thinking back to all the research you did out of the gate, looking at pain points and, and figuring out use mm-hmm. cases and thinking about where you're at now, you know, what are your impressions of what a lot of these enterprise? What are the most common things these enterprise companies are trying to do? And I, what I'm asking is really to get beyond the, you know, save money and make workers more efficient right like when you get a level or two below that what are the tangible real things they're asking make what are the asks that you know pulse ia's platform is getting that i don't know what what has surprised you are they getting smarter about what to ask it for you know what have you what have you learned about this
2: yeah that's a great question i think for it it depends on where this enterprise is mm-hmm. in the world, I think European enterprises have a strong focus on data compliance um g d p. r and so mm-hmm. forth, and that is like a lot of like blocking the sort of adaption of that new technology we saw that I think recently Europe came out with sort of the sort of the, the a i sort of policies how how to adapt that what's good what's bad and so forth. And that is, that is, I think at the forefront for, for many big enterprise companies first, in order to take this into action, sadly, it's sort of blocking in a way I wish to see, see this like, like, you know, being driven like way faster and adapted way faster than these. But I think the, the 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 number one pain point that talking to developers within these, which all, by the way, but have their side projects and experience with these applications and, and really love them, the number one pain point that I saw there is really that the industry is so early, and that's what I think Pulse AI is solving as well, that they... And that's very pragmatic, maybe. But like I think the, the, they saw that you know with, with, with one provider, if I build my application with one provider, it, it, it follows that specific schema. And then I develop it with another provider. It follows this other schema. Back in the days with Kubernetes as well, I built my application on top of AWS or on top of GCP. And once I got this lock in, then I would need to hire an entire new team to do that with that new application. Plus these new large language models that come out, they sort of you need to learn how to address them, how to talk to them, to get really the utility out of that that you wanted. And that is super complicated and you lose a lot of time of doing this or even just switching from one to the other because some things happen usually exclusive, like the number of top end that you add uh, with one provider is sort of like not the default that has been set with the other provider and boom, there you have it. And you can't really like move between these providers very freely and easily. And that is what like blocks actually the developer really from like integrating that. So I, I think it's maybe also not so much a question of like what is blocking these enterprises But I think the grassroots thing is really what is blocking these developers to actually start building very good applications on top of it, such as that the enterprise can see that there's really the value in it and then approves that. And that's that's a and that's one thing of the things that we're solving with by unifying sort of the, the format by unifying and, and running into these edge cases and solving them for you. So you have like a twenty x sort of time safety, which time is money. And so enterprises love this because they don't need to hire that expert. They don't need to run into the same issue again because so sort of when you build a platform, you're not integrating with just one and then highly specializing and overfitting for that one, but you building that across many pro- providers. And there are more providers coming just. To today we just uh, got announced for, for Mistral so we're part of the Mistral platform which makes me super exciting for for mixed using Mistral and seeing how this is performing and so we keep adding these providers and that makes the platform more resilient and more robust and and, and I think that's what really the the main um fear also from enterprises is that hey I, how can I build this how can I Fit this sort of fussy engineering. It's no, it's no longer binary in a way. It's sort of this: what is my SLA? What's my threshold? What happens to quality drift? What happens if sort of that that large English model that I was like building it on top of suddenly changes with the response from a week ago? And uh, do I, how do I notice this even? And so that's where where our platform helps helps you as well with like first measure that. So you can actually draw like a conclusion and and, and improve on that. But if you, if you can't measure it, you can't really improve it. It's just a guess.
0: Well, let me, let me finish up by asking you what you're most excited to build out in the new year about your product. As you look ahead, now that you've had eight months under your belt, where are you most excited Mm -hmm. to grow?
2: Yeah, I think most excited to grow for multimodal. I think that is something that will be like next year coming out. We see already great applications for this. And also the implications on what it means for uh, what, what is a good multimodal model how to evaluate that there are no data sets for this. Like what is a good image? Like who, who can tell me that? Like, you know, like preferences, is, is it the nuances, is the style better or so there, there, I think there are not many open source data sets yet. So I'm very excited of like seeing what's happening there and going, implementing also multimodal on top of our platform, which allows even more models, not just currently the really text to text models that we're like focusing on. It's exciting. Yeah.
0: Footnote for the audience: We almost called this podcast the multimodal podcast. It was it was on the list. Almost,
1: <laughs> and another footnote: As we mentioned, we spoke to uh, Kurt Boliker. He'll be joining us on another episode. He will have joined by the time people hear this. Yeah. Yes. Okay. He will have joined. I I allow Brian to be the the table of contents manager. But we talked about evaluation open source data sets. How these data sets can be used. Kept up to date his role with ML commons and pushing, you know, more rigorous evaluation across the board to as Fabian is working on increased transparency. I love this idea of a glass box as opposed to a black box. But uh, before we wrap, I wanted to to mention a couple things I thought were really interesting. So your background in cloud infrastructure or, you know, what we would now describe as cloud infrastructure has set you up to view this ecosystem in a very specific way. And Brian and I have, have talked about this in in the recent past, where we noted that with the the marketplace of LLMs, larger companies are understanding the way that they eventually got cloud, that they will just have another line item on their bill. And it'll either be from their existing cloud provider or perhaps someone else that they are they're procuring that LLM work with. But as with cloud, we're going to see and have seen pricing battles. So folks are offering cheaper options and they're also optimizing, figuring out how many people are actually using them. You you note the developers as being agnostic. How do you support them from creating no matter what the actual interface is? But specifically, you are trying to fight lock-in. You are trying to allow enterprise customers to embrace being early to the LLM scene, but not fearing what may happen down the road, as you said, with multimodality, or us all realizing there are other ways to use generative AI than we have figured out in a year. And and I think that that is a, a real competitive uh, advantage for your company, but I also wonder, how do you perceive your competitive advantage with other hyped young LLM companies out there?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. We see that there's like, when it comes to this, like innovation happening on, on, on the silicon part, like infrastructure, and then we see it also happening on the application layer. And as sort of like, there's a commoditization that happens with pricing at some point as well. But again, we're we're in the middle of this, and we're benefiting from it because we're like participating as a broker, if you will. And if we spot this like cheaper model for this case, then like yeah, this is this is great. Uh, Really where the sensibility comes into place is, I think, the innovation on the application layer and helping developers innovate on the application layer. What does it even mean building an LLM application, sort of the time, like safety that you have there, like that you do it 10 times, 20 times faster and so forth and building like a great tooling around this for, yeah, for application developers to like get closer and faster to their sort of like goal and not having to work on this. We saw this with AI ops too, where like everyone thinks, oh, you built an AI model and it's just like this AI model. But I think Chet, with Andre Caparche's talk about introduction to LLMs, which is by the way, super great. Like the this is 3.5 or GPT-3, it was just 500 lines of code in a way. And really the power li- lies into sort of the, the, the weights of the, the that come with it that are so huge in this compression thing. And so I think really the people, there's this misconception that they think it's, oh, I'm building this thing and it's like so complicated, but actually all of the steps before that, do I have the good data, data cleaning and so forth. And same thing is happening here when you build an application with large language models. It's not so much really like it's all this clue that needs to be provided and the supportive functions, for instance, vector databases, making all of this in the pipeline work tightly together. And I think there are many companies that are trying to achieve this. I think there's as, as a, this is great because all all sort of like uh, boats get raised, you know, with, with this. And and at the same time, I think you get a lot of validation that you're really onto something. And, and innovation and, and competition is also first good for innovation, but also good for the market in a way. And, and th- so that I, I really see that by us focusing on building tools that make the developers and big companies and small companies just more productive to get faster to their point. We sort of like have our edge there. And what comes out in 20, 20 months from now, we don't even know yet. And so it's 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 just being agile when it comes to that and agnostic that we can um, build a platform where we can like go with go with the direction is is, is here the, the goal. And many of these platforms won't be around I think in in five years from now as well. So yeah, but at the moment, this is really where the innovation
0: happens and because it happens so fast, it's it's a great place to be appreciate that. I know we're about we're on time and you've got a hard stop coming up here so I Sarah do you have one more thing thank you, you want to add?
1: Yeah. I just <laughs> wanted to say thank you so much. We can in the show notes we can add the intro to LLMs by Andre. We can we can add other details, but one thing I would have I'd like to make sure that we share is that are you looking for funding?
2: Yes, yeah, so we're, we're planning to <laughs> raise a our yeah. Series A. <laughs> Good question. Important question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shameless plug. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Shameless plug. Hi. Yeah. Hey Fabian. Here's time for your shameless plug. And to contact you, we will have your email on the page as well. And it's PulseAI. P U L Z E. Dot AI. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week's episode of the AI Artifacts Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you'll visit us on aiartifacts.net. There, you can subscribe to our Substack Show Notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. The show is produced by Brian Wormuth and Sarah Luger. Our visual design work is from Corey Scarn and Scarn Design. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons attribution 3.0 United States license.